If you have a Bible, I would love for you to take it out and open to Psalm 119. The verses that we're going to look at are verses 41 to 48. If you picked up a bulletin on the way in, there's an outline where you can track along with the message this morning. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 41. This is week 6 of 22 in Psalm 119, which means we're at the sixth letter of 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the letter Vav. I know that most English translations spell it Wa, W-A-W, but if you want to sound like a real Hebrew, and I think most of you do, then you don't say Wa, you say Vav. So this is the letter Vav. Now, some of you are grammar nerds, and I wouldn't dare ask you to raise your hand and expose yourself to the mockery that would come along with everyone knowing that you are interested in grammar. But some of you are like me, and so I'll just share with you an interesting fact. In Hebrew, the word and is the letter vav. It's just the one letter. That's the word and. And it never, never, never stands all by itself. It's not allowed to be by itself. It always gets smashed on to the next word. And in this section of Psalm 119, the Vav section, it is by far the least creative. No criticism to the author or to the Holy Spirit who inspired it. But it's the least creative of all the sections because all the author has done is taken the word and, a Vav, and smashed it onto the first word of every line of poetry. So in all the other sections, he picked words that lined up with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. With this section, all he did is he started each line with the word or the letter and, 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 all the way through. And it's a normal way that the Hebrews would tie ideas together using this conjunctive of. So there's your grammar lesson for the day. Now let's talk about poetry. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, 176 verses, and almost all of the letters, or all of the verses I should say, include some reference to the Bible. There's a handful of verses, we haven't got to any of them yet, that don't mention the Bible. Almost all of the verses make some reference to God's Word, written Scripture is the theme of Psalm 119. Our section is interesting because there's eight verses, just like there's eight verses in every section of Psalm 119. But in those eight verses, there's not just eight references to Scripture, but ten. Meaning there's a couple of verses that double up with two references to the Word of God. So the broad theme in Psalm 119 is the Bible, or it's the Word of God written. Now, one idea I want to put on the table for your consideration as we think about this section. This is a biblical idea, not just in verse 41 to 48, but throughout the Scriptures. The Word of God is living and it's active. It's living and active. And it is useful or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. When you read the Hebrews reference, Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces us to the core of who we are. The author of Hebrews is saying that the Bible exposes us. It shows us our sin. And when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he says all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for 
teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness, he's reminding us not only that the Word of God exposes our sin, but it has the authority to call us to move in new directions in our lives. The Bible, we believe, as Christian people, has that authority. The authority to expose sin in our hearts, in our mouths, in our lives, and the authority to correct us, to rebuke us, to say, no, 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 that's wrong, and this is right, and you need to move in a new direction. That's the big idea of this section, really. The Word of God changes the people of God. It changes us. The Word of God changes the people of God. So if you have your copy of the Scriptures, you can open to Psalm 119, verse 41. We'll read down to verse 48, and then we'll pray. The Bible says this, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Lord, we stop to thank you for your word. Father, as your people, we believe that your word is true. In our lives, we know it to be a living and active thing. Father, we desire to receive your word as useful for teaching us and reproving us and correcting us and training us all to the to the end of righteousness. Father, as your people, our desire this morning is to be changed by your word, and we pray that your spirit would use the breathed out word uh, to produce that change in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to think this morning just for a moment about things in your life that you have experienced that you would describe as life-changing. If you watch commercials, you'll find all sorts of life-changing promises. Buy this, it's life-changing. Do this, it's life-changing. Go here, it's life-changing. And I know and you know that most of those things are not at all life-changing. They might bring some small amount of change or affect some difference in your life, but they're not really fundamentally life-changing. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but what are the things that you have experienced in your life that you would describe as genuinely life-changing. Maybe you would think about getting married, or maybe you would think about the end of a marriage. Maybe you would think about having children or grandchildren, or maybe you would think about losing a child or losing a grandchild. Maybe you would think about getting a job or a promotion or some sort of advance at work. Or maybe you would think about losing your position at work. And you would look back and say, that was life-changing for me and for my family. Maybe you would think about a mission trip that you went on. I went on an overseas mission trip and the things that I saw, the things that I experienced 
uh, were life-changing. Maybe you would say, I served in the military. I think most of our servicemen and women would certainly say that their time in the military was life-changing in lots of different ways. Maybe you would think about inheriting some sum of money as a life-changing thing. Maybe you think about a time when you literally went bankrupt as a life-changing moment. There's all sorts of things that you may or may not have experienced that would fall under this genuine category of that was a life-changing experience. And your list probably looks different than my list, and my list probably looks different than your list. But whatever is on your life-changing list, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a true believer, then somewhere on your list you should have exposure to the Word of God was life-changing for me. And some of you think about that exposure to the Word of God. Some of you, I know you would say, look, I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up knowing anything about the Bible at all. And when I was finally exposed to the Word of God, here was the circumstance. It was dramatically life-changing for me. Others of you are probably more like me, and you would say, you know, I grew up going to church. I grew up with parents who taught me the Bible, and I grew up hearing about the gospel from a young age. I don't really remember a time in my life where I don't believe, uh, didn't believe that the Bible was God's Word and that Jesus was the Savior. These things were just instilled in me from a young age. And I would submit to you that the Word of God has been life-changing in your life as well. And the contrast may not be as dramatic at a moment in time as an adult, where you repented and believed, but the contrast may be seen in what your life could have been like compared to what your life has been like as it's been guided and shaped by the Word of God. If you're a believer, certainly you ought to be able to give testimony to the fact that the Word of God has changed your life. It's been life-changing. That's what we're talking about this morning. The Word of God changing the people of God. And the question that we want to ask and answer is simple. What kind of change are we talking about? What does it look like? Give me some specific examples of something that ought to change in my life because I am somebody who has believed the truth of God's Word. And there's several things spelled out in this section of Psalm 119. We intend to walk through them. Some of you I know, this is just a quick disclaimer, some of you I know to be clock watchers. You like to watch the time in church and see how much time is left, and you like to look at the outline and see how many points are left, and I just want to do you a favor this morning, and I want to say to you, don't be anxious when we spend a lot of time on the first point. Okay? I'm taking the burden off of your shoulders so that you don't worry that we're going to be here for four hours and miss a football game or a nap or roses or whatever you have planned this afternoon. We're going to look at seven truths from Psalm 119, 41 to 48. We're going to spend as much time talking about the first truth as the other six combined. So hang with me. We're going to get through truth number one, and then I'm going to give you the other six in rapid-fire succession. So number one. What kind of change do the people of God experience through the Word of God? The Word of God changes our eternity. That's a pretty big change. Verse 41. 
the psalmist prays, he says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, and it's Lord in all caps, so he's talking to Yahweh, the God of Israel, not any other God, but that specific God. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Let your salvation come according to your promise. He's praying that God's steadfast love would be poured out in his life. In the ESV, the translators take a Hebrew word, hesed, and they translate it as steadfast love. I'll just be honest with you, there's really no good way to translate this phrase simply in English. And so other translators come up with faithful love, loving kindness, unfailing love. Some of them just say love. Some of them use the word mercies. This is a big, expansive word in the Hebrew language. And to get it into English, you've got to do a lot of explaining to understand what God's hesed his steadfast love really is. There's a woman who's written a wonderful children's Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Here's her translation or her paraphrase. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Now that's a mouthful, and it won't do to put that into the book of Psalms every time you find the word hesed, but that's a pretty good run at a definition. What is God's steadfast love? Well, it's His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, always moves in two directions, backwards and forwards, always and forever love. That's the foundation of our salvation. Not anything in us. Not any decision you make. Not any prayer you pray. This is the bedrock foundation of the believer's salvation. It is God's steadfast love. That's at the bottom of all of our salvations, of our eternity being set to be with God. This is the bedrock. It's God's love for His people. I want you to take your Bible. I'm not going to put this verse on the screen. I'd like you to read it out of the Scriptures. Flip back to the left. And look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' attempt to get the new generation ready to enter the promised land. The Exodus generation has been saved, but then they died in the wilderness because they did not want to go in and fight in the conquest. They were too scared. They didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb, so they all perished in the wilderness. Moses is now about to die, but he's getting this new generation ready. And one of the things that Moses wanted these children who are now grown up to have in their worldview and the way that they thought about God and the way they thought about their relationship with God was this idea that at the bottom of their relationship was not anything in them as the Hebrew people, but it was God's steadfast love. So look what Moses says, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest 
of all peoples. Do you remember how many peoples they were when we started with Abraham and Sarai? Two people. That's when God made His first promise to the Hebrew people, to Abraham. You weren't more numerous. You weren't richer. You weren't more powerful. You weren't smarter. It was just two of you. And quite frankly, you were old. Not because you were more numerous. Why is it? Verse 8. It's because the Lord loves you. Why did He pick those people? These people. Why did He choose them to be holy and to be set apart? Here's the answer. It's because He loves you. That's the reason. He loves you. And He's keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and He's redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love has said it says never stopping never giving up unbreaking always and forever love He keeps that love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Why did God pick these people? He picked them because He loved them. That's the bedrock reason. That may not answer all your questions about how God works in space-time history, but that's the Bible answer. How did this relationship between God and the Hebrew people begin? It began with God loving them. Guess what? That's not just an Old Testament truth, it's a New Testament truth. So take your Bible, flip all the way to the right, to the New Testament, look at the book of Ephesians. The very same truth that Moses tried to drum into the heads and the hearts of the Hebrews is the very same truth that Paul tried to drum into the heads and the hearts of the church in Ephesus. He wanted them to know the bedrock reason you have a relationship with God is that God loved you. It's not that you were lovable. It's that He loved you. So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us. Did you see that word in Deuteronomy 7? Because it was there. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be Holy. Did you see that word in Deuteronomy 7? Because it was there. He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Notice the logic of verse 4. He didn't choose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world because we were holy. We weren't. We aren't. But He chose us in Jesus so that we would be a holy people. Verse 5. It says, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What Moses was trying to drum into the hearts of the people in Deuteronomy 7 and what Paul was trying to drum into the hearts of the people in the church in Ephesus is the exact same truth you find in Psalm 119 verse 41 when the psalmist says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your hesed, your salvation according to your promise. You see, the psalmist understood that you could draw a straight line from God's 
steadfast love for his people to their salvation. And he knew that God's steadfast love that would save his people was expressed in God's promises. When God promises to save a people, that's like a verbalizing of his love for them. And when God makes a promise, the Bible is clear that he always keeps his word. When he swears an oath, he always keeps his word. When he says that he's going to do something, he does it. We sang about that this morning, right? God, you said it, so we're going to take you at your word because you are good on your promise. You always keep your promise. How many of you have made a promise to somebody only to regret it? Regretful laughter. You think, oh yeah, this one time I said I would do this thing. I said I would go to this place. I said I would lead this whatever. I said I would contribute. And then you get to the time and you think, why did I make that promise? What was I thinking? I don't want to come through on this promise, but I said I would do it, so I guess I have to do it. And you go into the the fulfillment of whatever you said you were going to do And quite frankly, you have a horrible attitude about it. Some of you might be tempted to think that that's how God is towards you. You might be tempted to think, okay, before the foundation of the world, He set His love to save a people. Got it. And He made a promise that He was going to save them, and He always keeps His promise. Understand that. He's faithful. Sang about that this morning. But as you think about your life and your own struggle with sin and your own shortcomings and your own failures and the things that you wish you could be done within your life, maybe there's a thought in the back of your mind that creeps in assuming that God is like you. You understand God's not like you. That's the fundamental idea in God being holy. He's not like us. But we're tempted to think that He's like us. And so we think about His love and His promises to save. And maybe you think to yourself, well, it's a good thing He set His love on me. And it's a good thing He made a promise because I'm pretty sure He's sick of me now. I'm pretty sure He wishes He hadn't made that promise. I'm pretty sure if He could go back, He would undo that promise. That's not who God is. And that's not how His love works. It was when Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he predestined us in love before the foundation of the world to be his children. You understand that before the foundation of the world, God knew you. And he knew everything about you. He knew your past, your present, and your future. From whatever point in space-time history you want to judge that, he knew all of it, he knows all of it. And there's nothing about you that surprises God. And I can sort of just let you off the the guilt trip hook here and say, God did not set His love on you because He knew that you were going to love Him or that you would be lovable or that you would be holy or any of that. God set His love on you, if you're a believer, He set His love on you because He loved you. That's the biblical reason. He loved you freely. Isn't that the definition of love that John gives us in 1 John 4.10? This is love. It's not that we loved God first, but that it's He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This relationship that the Christian has with God is not something that was founded on our love for Him. It was built on His love 
for us. What kind of love? Has said love, steadfast love, covenant love, faithful love, his mercies, his love, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the love that God has for sinners, and that's the love at the bedrock of our hope. That's the love that God had for the world. It was so great a love. God loved the world to such a degree that He gave His only Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal, we're talking about eternity, eternal life. The bedrock of that is not you, and it's not me. It's God's love for sinners, and it changes our eternity. If you're a believer, your eternity has been changed, not because of any good thing in you, but because of God's steadfast love. And if you are not a believer... You sit in this room this morning and you have never repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your eternity can be changed because God in His love for sinners, just like you, sent His Son to die as a propitiation, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice so that you could be forgiven and you could be adopted into God's family as a child. I think it would be wise to make Psalm 119.41 our prayer this morning, regardless of who you are. If you're a believer, continue to pray it. If you're not a believer, we would invite you to make this prayer your own. God, let your steadfast love come to me. Salvation according to your promise. Now, let's just step back real quick. How is it that we know all of that stuff? How is it that we know that God is not like us? How is it that we know that He is faithful in His love, His covenant love, His hesed love? How do we know that He made promises to save a people out of that love? How do we know that in the fullness of time He sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross as a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins and that he rose three days later from the, the grave and he offers to change the eternity of anyone's life who will repent and believe. How do we know all that? Do you know all that from looking at a sunset? Do you know all that from looking at a sunrise? Looking at the stars? beach, the ocean, the mountains. I mean, look, the Bible says we can look at the created things and that we can know there is a God and that we owe our lives to Him. You can look at the created universe and you can come away knowing there is a God. How do you know all of this stuff about what He's like in His character, in His saving promises, in the work of His Son? in the promise of the gospel. How do you know it all? That's what we're talking about, the Bible, the Word of God, the Scriptures. That's how you know it. You know it in God's Word. Listen, God's Word changes our eternity because God's Word contains 
and is and will always be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, useful for teaching, correcting, training, and righteousness. So it changes our eternity. It also changes us. We'll move through these more quickly. What does it change? The Word of God changes the way we respond to persecution. Persecution. Verse 42. There are people taunting him. We don't know why. Maybe it's because of what he believes or how he's ordered his life, but they're taunting him. And his confidence is that because he trusts in God's Word, he's going to have an answer for those who taunt him. So it changes the way we respond to persecution. Next, the Word of God changes the hope that we have in life and in death. This is verse 43. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. You understand that when he says, my hope is in your rules, he's not saying, I hope that I can be good enough at keeping all the rules. That's not what he's saying. We've talked about this over and over. In Psalm 119, all these different terms, rules, statutes, commandments, word, all of these things are sort of used interchangeably to talk about special revelation, Scripture, the written Word of God. What he's saying is not that I hope I can be good enough in keeping the rules. What he's saying is that I read your Word and I find hope. Hope. In life and in death. Isn't that what Paul told the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4.13? As they were attending funerals and grieving the loss of loved ones, those life-changing events that they were dealing with, he said to them, look, we grieve You grieve, I grieve, but we don't grieve like people without hope. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. Next, the Word of God changes the way we live our lives. I know that's a big, broad category. That's what the psalmist says in verse 44 and 45. He says, I'll keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I've sought your precepts. That idea of walking in a wide place is a poetic way for a Hebrew person to say, you know what, I think this is how life works best. I think that God probably knows what he's talking about when he tells us how marriage ought to work and how parents and children ought to relate and how we ought to be people of worship and we shouldn't murder each other and we shouldn't steal from each other, we shouldn't lie to each other, we shouldn't covet what the other one has. I think God actually knows what he's talking about and I think this is how life works best. We've been singing about that on Sunday mornings as we've sang about God's word. We've seen how good it works. What does that line mean? Does that mean it's good at making us money? Does that mean it's good at keeping us healthy and happy all the time? Does that mean it's good at getting rid of all the bad things in our life? It doesn't mean any of that stuff. What it means is He's the Creator and He created us. And you know what? The Creator knows how life works best. You can live against God's design in this universe or you can live with it. And the psalmist is saying, look, I'm committed to your word. I'm committed to your word. And when I'm committed to it, I'm going to walk in a wide way because this is how you have designed life to work best. Next, the word of God changes the way we speak. Verse 46 says that he will speak of God's testimonies before kings and he will not be put to shame. 
I have no idea if you'll ever speak to a real-life king. I have no idea if you'll ever be hauled in before a politician to talk about the Bible. But I know that you have friends and families and neighbors and co-workers, classmates, who need to hear the word of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And they're not here this morning, but you're going to be with them this week. And you should speak to them about these things. When we have the Word of God and we know the Word of God, one of the changes it makes in us is what comes out of our mouth. It's why the book of Revelation over and over and over again refers to God's people as witnesses. They're witnesses. They talk about these things with their mouth. They've seen it. They've experienced it. Changes the way that they speak. Next, the Word of God changes what we love. This is an idea we have seen multiple times in Psalm 119, and we will see many more times. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And he says in verse 48, I'll lift up my hands toward your commandments. Again, he says, which I love. He loves the Word of God. Look, I'm a pastor, but I'm not totally dumb. And I know that when you have set out to read the Bible, maybe you started in Genesis, pretty interesting book. Exodus, pretty good. Sooner or later you get to Leviticus. And I don't have any illusion that the first time you read the book of Leviticus, you thought it was the most captivating thing you've ever read. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if you plowed through and you kept going, you got to Chronicles and there's a whole bunch of names in Chronicles and you thought to yourself, why do I need to know this? Can I skip this? Is there a Cliff's Notes version? Why is this in here? And if you're like me, you get to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and you feel like you're never going to get out of that book. It's so long. Those books are so long. It's like driving through the state of Arkansas. You feel like you're never going to get out. When does this state end? You're going and you're going and you're going and you think, they, they said this already. Why is he saying it again? He's saying it again. He's saying it again. You know what else I understand? If you will walk with the Lord and if you will commit yourself to read this book, really commit to it. And you'll meditate on it. And you'll orient your life according to this book. I promise you, at some point in time, you will understand what the psalmist is saying when he says, I delight in your word. I love it. I don't expect that one five-minute devotion on Tuesday is going to get you across that finish line. It won't. What I'm saying to you is if you commit yourself to read this book from beginning to end over and over, when you get to the end, start over at the beginning. Just keep going. I don't care what plan you use. Just use a plan. You know what I promise you? At some point, you'll come to the, the book of Leviticus and a light bulb will go off and you'll say, this is actually kind of important. Because everything described in this book is described in the book of Hebrews. And that book in the New Testament is pretty important. And I don't really understand that one without this one. And you'll come to those long lists of names. I'm not going to pretend like they're riveting. But you're going to read them differently. And you're, you're going to say to yourself, God knew these people. These were real people. He loved these people. 
God was faithful to these people. They lived and they breathed and they walked and they died and God was faithful through all of it. And you'll come to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and you've read the whole story of Israel and you're going to say, now I understand why they needed to hear it over and over and over again. It's because no one was listening. They needed the repetition. Five minutes on Tuesday, you're not going to wake up on Wednesday and say, I delight in your word and I love it. But if you set out as a pilgrim to read this book and to make it part of your life, you will end up agreeing with the psalmist that you delight in it and you love it and that in some ways you feel like a deer panting for streams of water if you could just get some truth out of this book. It changes what we love. Lastly, the Word of God changes the way we worship. Verse 48, he says, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So we've talked about the, the love part. In recent weeks, we've talked about what it means to meditate on God's Word. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 48. He says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. I understand this is a Baptist church. And I've been Baptist long enough to know that the two things Baptists are afraid of more than anything is somebody thinking we're Catholic or charismatic. We don't want, we don't want either of those put on us. We've been recently using catechism questions to teach our kids at youth camp and Wednesday nights and our youth. And I've had a couple of people, very kind people, come to me and say to me, Pastor, we're using a catechism. I'm pretty sure that's a Catholic thing. And I've said, you know what? It's actually a Protestant thing. Protestants, we actually invented the catechism. Catholics use it, but we invented it. We're the ones who came up with it. All it is is a question and answer tool to teach biblical truth. But you understand the fear. Are we becoming Catholic? For some of you, there's a little bit of fear with this raising your hands business. You think, well, here we go. We're a Pentecostal church, charismatic church, raising hands. I'll be honest with you. I remember very distinctly as a young man sitting by my granddad in worship. Had to be one of the first times I actually sat with him at our church. The youth usually sat in the front, and I was sitting with him in the back, and we were singing a song, and he raised his hand, and I put my head down. And I thought, what is happening right now? My granddad, this is, this is ridiculous. What is he doing? And you know what? I asked him about it. After church, I said, Joe, what was that? And you know what he did? He opened the Old Testament and the New Testament and showed me passages that talk about the raising of hands being done as an act of worship. And he just said to me, I see it in the Bible. It's a Hebrew way of giving praise to someone. Can I let you in on something? It's a human way of giving praise. And if you don't believe me, turn your TV on when you get home and watch a football game and see what happens when they score a touchdown. Guaranteed. Bunch of Pentecostals watching football. You understand that when he says, I'm going to lift my hands to your commandments, he's not worshiping the Bible. He's worshiping the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. 
And he knows, apart from God's word, I don't know who he is. I don't know what his promises are to save us. I don't know all that he's done to choose a people and to make a people holy. And so he lifts his hands to God's word. Do you understand that I'm not saying to you, you've got to lift your hands or you've got to close your eyes or you've got to clap. or you've got... I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that when you understand this book, it changes your worship. All of us are going to worship. You're a creature. You were created to worship. You will worship someone or something. What the Bible does is it brings it back in line, our worship, and it directs it to the God who deserves to be worshipped. So, it changes our eternity and it changes us. I think a lot of churches make the error of overemphasizing one or the other. I think you can find a lot of churches today that are quick to tell people that God's Word will change their eternity. You do this thing, you pray this prayer, you can go to heaven when you die, you can be assured of that. But they really don't say much at all about how God might want to change His people. Really, that sort of left off is an optional thing. Maybe if you're interested later, we can talk about that. The main point is to say we want to see your eternity changed. I think there's another group of churches that make the opposite error. And they get people in the building and they're very stern with them and they say, look, you better clean yourself up and you better change your life. And they have a Bible verse for all the things that they're talking about. You better do this and that and stop this and stop that. You better make these life changes. But in their presentation of a works-based gospel, everyone is sort of left wondering, is my eternity changed or not? Because I don't know if I'm going to be good enough. I don't know if I can make enough changes to get myself in in the end. And I think Psalm 119 just shoots it right down the middle. And the psalmist unashamedly says that God in His faithful love changes the eternity of His people. He gives salvation to His people. Life through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he says that the very same Bible that tells you that good news, that gospel message, will be at work in you like something that's sharper than a two-edged sword, something that's living and active, something that will teach you and correct you and rebuke you and train you for righteousness. This last Thursday, I had to take my kids to school. Emma left. Usually, she drives the little kids to school. I drove them to school. We were driving down the loop, and on my playlist in my pickup truck, a Rich Mullins song came on. And the Rich Mullins song is an old Rich Mullins song called Creed. And it's basically the Apostles' Creed set to music. And the song was about 15 seconds in, and a voice from the back seat, I won't say who it was, but a voice from the back seat said, Dad, this song is really weird. And it is kind of weird. Rich Mullins was a weird guy, and the song is driven by a lap dulcimer. He's playing a lap dulcimer here, and... It sort of bings and bangs and tings all the way through the song. And there's not a lot of songs that have a lap dulcimer as the lead instrument. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird song. But the song is just the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summary of Christian belief set to music. And then it's punctuated with a refrain. And this is what Rich Mullins sings in the refrain. 
I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. Now, I'll just stop right there. As a young person, I heard this song growing up. And because of the pause in the music, what I thought Rich Mullins was saying all my life is, I believe what I believe, period. That's what I thought he was saying. I believe what I believe. You can't change my mind. You can't convince me otherwise. I'm not budging. I'm not moving. I've got it all figured out, and I don't want to listen to you. But that's not the point he's trying to make in the song. What he says in the song is, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. And then he explains it. He says, I didn't make it. We didn't make this book. You're going to watch a thousand Discovery Channel, History Channel documentaries that say to you that human beings made this book. We don't believe that human beings made this book. We believe that God breathed this book out. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God carried men along as they wrote the words of the Scriptures. We believe in the truest sense that this is God's Word. We didn't make it, but it's making us. It's the very truth of God, and it's not the invention of any man. I don't know if the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 knew how to play a lap dulcimer, but I think he would agree with that line. This book is the truth of God. It will change your eternity, and when it changes your eternity, it will change you. It will make you. It will shape you. It will mold you. It will teach you. It will correct you. It will reprove you all to the end of righteousness. Father, as your people, we stop. We thank you for your word. We believe that it's true. We did not make it. We believe that it's in the process of making us. It's living and it's active. Lord, we submit our lives to it as something that's useful for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness. Father, we want to be people who not only have our eternity changed by your word, but we want to be people who are changed by your word. We pray that your same spirit who breathed these words out would use them in our lives to change us. Make us the kind of people that regardless of circumstance or situation, we can agree with the hymn writer and say that your plan and your ways and your word is good with us. It's well with us. Not because life is always the way that we would have it to be, but because our eternity has been changed and we are being changed and your word is true. Father, be honored in our singing. We do it for your glory and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.